0: Meyer brand grills up the value you expect with quality you can taste in every bite. Try our new quarter-pound beef franks, cradled in our own hot dog buns and topped with tangy, no-sugar-added ketchup or easy-squeeze-whipped salad dressing. Top your burger with our convenient burger-shaped Colby cheese slices. And don't forget the sides, like party-size ripple potato chips, perfect for scooping, and our own special recipe cool and creamy macaroni salad. Stop into Meyer. And discover big taste and bigger savings on Meijer Brand. Good morning, I'm your host David, a.k.a. Baba, and this is Thy Daily Edge. A fresh twist on the morning brief where I share my views on everything from recent news and current affairs to popular culture and personal finance. Hope you enjoy the show. Japan is a country many of us look to as the future of technology and innovation. But what happens to that future if the sun doesn't rise on Japan's debt crisis? In recent years, Japan, widely considered to be the world's foremost technology innovator, has been forced to innovate in the world of economics in order to prevent the collapse of its mountain of debt. This debt is currently worth over 250% of its GDP. No, that's not a typo. Japan is the world's most indebted country. You may be wondering, how did Japan get into this mess? Japan has had to fight deflation since the early 90s. Its economic resurgence after World War II created asset bubbles, which finally burst in 1989. So when the stock market crashed and equity prices dropped, banks and insurance companies were stuck with a ton of bad debt. The Japanese government and central banks stepped in in order to lend a hand, and bailed them out with low interest credit. However, this turned out to be the economic equivalent of putting duct tape over a water fountain, because when the dam eventually burst, the biggest banks had to be consolidated and nationalised. So if you kept track so far, you'll know this means the government effectively absorbed all the debt from the crash. Now over the years, the Bank of Japan had several more cracks at fixing the problem. But those fiscal stimulus packages one after another continued to fail, and Japan's debt level skyrocketed to become the highest in the world. It's not all bad, though. Unlike other highly indebted countries, such as Greece, the majority of Japan's debt is internal, so the risk of defaulting is actually lower. In theory, it can simply pull on the levers of taxation and interest rates to keep repayment values low relative to total debt. However, in practice, those levers are proving not to be so simple after all. You may have heard of Abenomics, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's three-pronged approach to fixing Japan's economy. It combines fiscal expansion, monetary easing, and structural reform. The immediate goal is to reinvigorate the market, boosting domestic demand and GDP growth, all while raising inflation to a target of 2%. Abe's structural policies aim to improve the country's prospects by increasing competition, reforming labour markets, and expanding trade partnerships, the latter of which has been made much harder by Donald Trump's withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. As I mentioned, Avenomics has three arrows. The first arrow is a fiscal stimulus program which began in 2013 with economic recovery measures totaling 20 trillion yen. That's about $210 billion, of which $116 billion was direct government spending. This spending was largely focused on building critical infrastructure projects, such as bridges, tunnels, and earthquake-resistant roads. But inflation didn't budge, and so a separate 5.5 trillion yen boost followed in April 2014, and then, not long after that, another 3.5 trillion. The second arrow, and the real engine of Abenomics, is an unorthodox monetary policy, in particular, the Bank of Japan's asset purchase program. It's essentially a gigantic monetary policy experiment, the likes of which we've never seen anywhere else. To explain the difference between fiscal and monetary policies, fiscal policies deal more with government spending. So we're looking at the government's budget, the government's borrowing, taxation, which is how the government recoups a lot of the funds that it spends, and also interest rates. On the other side, monetary policies are essentially printing money and increasing market liquidity. So, here, on one hand, the Bank of Japan has injected liquidity into the market. This is what's called quantitative easing. But simultaneously, for the first time, it's also pushed some interest rates into negative territory. Since 2016, interest rates have been pretty much fixed at minus 0.1%. On the fiscal side, consumer taxes have also been raised from 5 to 8% and are set to rise again this year to 10%. The third arrow of Abenomics is structural reform. This includes a raft of packages, like cutting red tape and bureaucracy around business regulations, liberalising the labour market, cutting corporate taxes, increasing the participation of women in the workforce. All of these things are geared towards reviving Japan's competitiveness. So the BOJ's first round of QE in 2013 doubled its balance sheet. But inflation didn't budge. They've already had to start a second phase, which now means the Bank of Japan is purchasing $660 billion worth of assets every year. And it intends to continue until the 2% inflation target is achieved. As a reference, inflation is currently around 0.8%. To clarify, Japan's government is sitting on a pile of debt worth $11 trillion. So their central bank, the Bank of Japan, is essentially buying up all of the government's bonds to, at least in the short term, injects money into the economy, even if that means producing fresh debt in five years. That scale of purchases is unmatched anywhere in the world. As a reference, while the assets of the US Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank both stand below 25% of their respective GDPs, the value of assets held by the Bank of Japan has now exceeded 70% of its GDP. Japan's labour shortage continues to be another serious factor in its economic stagnation, Japan is an ageing economy. It has more people over 60 than under 30, and more people over 90 than under 10. The working age Japanese population has gone down by 6% over the last decade, and Japan also risks losing a third of its population over the next 50 years. This is an incredibly tricky position when you factor in inflation, because due to Japan's struggles with deflation, the average Japanese worker is now technically earning less than they were in the 90s. In late 2015, Abe announced Abenomics 2.0 to address this. This is a raft of policies that focuses more on raising the birth rate and expanding social security. He's also created a new cabinet position, specifically focused on reversing Japan's demographic decline. This year Japan's parliament approved controversial new laws, allowing hundreds of thousands of foreigners into the country to ease labour shortages. From next April, many foreigners may be allowed to take up jobs in sectors such as construction, farming and nursing. Japan has traditionally been sceptic of immigration, but the government now says that more foreigners are needed due to Japan's ageing population problem. So under this new system, over 300,000 foreigners could be allowed to work in sectors facing a labour crunch. The new law creates two visa categories. Those in the first category will be allowed in for five years, assuming they can prove a level of proficiency in Japanese. Workers with an even higher level of skills could qualify for the second visa category. Those in the second category may eventually be able to apply for residency. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has stressed that the proposed law is not an overhaul of its current immigration policies. Japan will only accept foreigners who have specific skills and who can work immediately to address serious labor shortages. Japan's fertility rate in the 1970s dropped below 2.1 childbirths per woman, That is replacement level, essentially the level of childbirth needed simply to replicate its existing population level. However, it has now dropped to 1.4%, meaning that not enough people are even giving birth to sustain its current level of population. Japan's population, as mentioned, has been dwindling for years and faces the prospect of simply dropping off a cliff in the next two decades. Critics argue that Abenomics brings major risks, On one hand, many think that the monetary easing program could spur hyperinflation, but conversely, many also contend that Abe's plan may do little to reverse the deeply entrenched deflation. Japan's national debt of $11 trillion now stands at 250% of its GDP and continues to be a source of concern. We may still have to wait for another few years to see the results of Abenomics 2.0 to decide whether or not it's had any effect at all. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in. Please don't forget to rate, to review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast. And if you have any comments or rebuttals, feel free to get at me on Twitter at thydailyedge or at JustCallMeBaba. Founders Brewing Company has found a way to make an IPA you can enjoy anytime that's perfect for any occasion with their all-day IPA at 4.7 ABV. You can still taste the hops, of course, but it's the complex array of malts and grains that make all-day IPA a beer that will grab your attention. That full flavor and low ABV is what continues to make it a staple in my fridge. Look for Founders in your favorite beer store or check out their full line of beer at foundersbrewing.com. Founders Brewing Company, born and brewed in Michigan since 1997. Circle K is America's thirst stop and yours, especially when the weather gets and you need to stay. Stay refreshed on the go with ice cold Circle K favorites like freshly ground ice coffee, Froster, Polar Pop Cup and more. And right now at Circle K, score with 28-ounce Gatorade. Any flavor, three for $5. When life's go, 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 make us your first stop. Because Circle K is America's thirst stop.